0: This week, we're taking an intermission. In the meantime, here's a brand new episode of The Diary of Eliza Schultz. The show is a loosely continuous anthology, so there's no need to listen to the other episodes in order to understand this one. The Diary of Eliza Schultz is the surreal story of Eliza Schultz, on her quest to review every novel by airport novelist Raphael Muslani and what she discovers along this journey. Season 1 is available now, and more of Season 2 is coming soon, so subscribe to The Diary of Eliza Schultz wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy. I spent a year in a cave. When I say that I spent a year here, I mean that it has been a year and I am still here. I do not have a continuous thread of memories from the moment that I left Rafael Muslani's house with his cat, Lucy, the largest cat in the world, accompanying me while still attached to the longest leash in the world. It had been a year, but it hadn't been a year for myself or Lucy. We had experienced no time at all. I was not lost, languishing, or alone, for some reason unable to find my way back to civilization. I just... wasn't. I say that I am still here because in the context of this diary, I am still here. When the diary is read, I will still be here for someone, until this section is finished, at which point I won't be. I will exist in superposition, riding in this cave and elsewhere, wherever I continue to be." Lucy and I made our way deep into the cave, unconcerned. Raphael Muslani had sent Lucy with me to protect me, assuming that there was anything to protect me from. Only encountering bugs and lizards in the cave, I did not see much need for protection. I was not concerned with the cave itself as a threat, either. Lucy was attached to the longest leash in the world. It trailed behind her, following her every move. When the time came to exit the cave, we would follow the leash and never become lost. Our eyes adjusted as we walked into the cave, until I could tell that it was pitch black despite my ability to see rather clearly. I could not locate any light sources from which photons were allegedly entering my eyes as they bounced unpredictably through the cave. I was seeing on borrowed light. Most animals that live deep inside a cave are blind, some with vestigial eyes, protruding from the skull but seeing nothing. Scientists have been able to transplant functional eyes onto some of these animals in experiments, and the animals are able to use them to see. The neural pathways for sight are still there, it is only the biological technology for collecting light that is atrophied. The cave opened up into an enormous chamber with crystalline stalactites hanging overhead and floor graciously free of stalagmites. The thought of staying somewhere with stalactites overhead frightened me. The thought of them falling, despite the reality that they hadn't fallen in millions of years and were not more prone to it due to the presence of myself and Lucy. There was a pool fed by a waterfall that supplied water from the top of the chamber. I could see the expanse of the room even though there was no light. I lived there for a year." The collection of short stories that Raphael Muslani had given me to read, "Salesmen and True Believers, was an unprecedented success for short stories in the modern era. Even before publication, it had been picked up to be a six-part television miniseries with an enormous budget. Television executives were moving heaven and earth to ensure filming was quick enough to coincide with the release of the collection. Oh God, I am Larry, the story of a man turning into a fish told in reverse order would be in the homes of millions. I was happy for Raphael Muslani. The collection wasn't perfectly to my taste, but I could see the ambition in it. I could see the fingerprints of the kind man who had aided me on my journey. In Salesmen and True Believers, he had taken chances with short stories that he wouldn't have in a novel. I don't remember building a fire in the chamber, but I was sitting in front of one. The chamber was far too spacious for the smoke from the fire to become irritating. It was escaping from wherever the water was coming in from. It was a modest fire, enough to produce some comforting warmth. It provided light as well, a surfeit of light that I didn't need. Lucy laid on top of my feet, purring, as I sat and watched the fire, the shadows of the flame dancing on the opposite wall. The cave paintings in Lascaux, France are more than 16,000 years old, and there are other, less-maintained, cruder petroglyphs, meaning artistic carvings on rock, dating back to 65,000 years ago in other areas of the world. One proposed phenomenological explanation for the existence of the Lascaux paintings is that small fires, like the one that I and the Paleolithic hunter-gatherers before me had made in caves, lowered the oxygen content of the air in the caves they were exploring, and this hypoxia caused them to hallucinate. This spiritual experience inspired them to paint on the walls of the cave with ochre and manganese. When presented as the chief explanation, especially in popular science media, this strikes me as condescending. As though before modernity, artistic works had to justify themselves in a self-contained explanation, that religious experience was a chemical phenomenon. It goes against every intuition to create I have ever felt. Believing that there has to be a discrete phenomenological event to explain the existence of artistic works is like believing that artists are waiting around for a muse to descend from the heavens and dictate to them what to create. Anyone who has ever created an artistic work, no matter the scale, understands that there is a deeper, more interesting phenomenological process of artistic creation. This process only looks like the muse if the technology of process is so foreign to the viewer as to be indistinguishable from magic. The hallucination theory of cave paintings is an admission that the modern viewer cannot adequately see the technology of the process. The meaning in these paintings are the end result of a semiotic battle, the winner of which was called 16,000 years ago. We were born in entirely the wrong time to understand, with minds that prize understanding over all. One of the stories in Salesman and True Believers had its conclusion set in a cave. Tiger on a Waterbed, the fourth story in the collection, is dedicated, quote, to Lucy, the largest cat in the world, and is the story of Thomas Eugene Marston. Marston was a professor at the small community college in the town that he grew up in, teaching an introductory class on philosophy primarily to freshmen, one of the only people on staff to have a PhD and not just a master's. At the beginning of his story, he receives news that all of the classes he taught were being scrapped due to changes in the budget. Unable to find other academic work in his small town, he has no choice but to go door-to-door selling solvents, brushes, and personal and home care products. Marston finds the performance of selling household products to be a degrading demotion from his professorial job, where people paid him simply for his knowledge that he had spent his whole life accruing. He still possessed that knowledge, even though he could no longer sell it. His feelings of resentment were present on his face. He sold poorly, often pity-buys from bored housewives who sympathized with his ennui. As the author, Raphael Muzlani arranges things to go terribly for Marston for a while, until one day he is in a particularly nice neighborhood and decides to knock on some doors. Mansions aren't the prime targets of door-to-door salesmen. Generally, the people who live in them can afford much better than what Marston was offering. Muslani describes how nothing in particular influences his instinct to knock on the door, Marston is an animal who received a shot of dopamine that persuaded him, nothing more to it than that. The truth is, Muslani wrote him to knock on the door, so he knocked on the door, just as any of us act if we are written to do so. The house attached to the door that Thomas Eugene Marston was written to knock upon belonged to none other than Julius Darrington Witt, a middle-aged, bald, cigar-chomping monopoly man of a capitalist, who answered the door himself, too rich to have anything better to do. Darrington Witt has expensive-looking rings on every finger. Marston is invited into this lavish home with surprising generosity, told to sit down his suitcase, we'll get to that later, and given a tour of Darrington Witt's mansion. Marston accepts, regretting in his inner monologue that he hadn't been better dressed, and had spent all day outside wilting in the heat. The house is what is today known as a McMansion, a hodgepodge of different, expensive, stylistic architectural decisions made by someone with no architectural knowledge, who wanted a little bit of everything, and is too rich to ever be told no under any circumstances. The rooms are mostly typical. Offices, studies, reading rooms, writing rooms, television rooms, a home theater. The sort of nichification that comes with so few people occupying so much space. Marston can see Darrington Witt's growing anticipation as they reach the end of a particular hallway. He hopes that there is somewhere for him to sit, as his feet have grown tired walking through the mansion. When they reach the room at the end of the hallway, Darrington Witt smiles, says... Welcome to the waterbed room and opens the door to his right. Inside, there is a guest bedroom, themed like a Siberian birch forest, with faux plants and faux snow all over, and a waterbed on an ornate wooden and golden bed frame in the center of the room. On top of the waterbed is a Siberian tiger, roughly six and a half feet long, not counting the tail, and over 400 pounds, reclining, seemingly without concern. Marston instinctively backs up to exit the room, but Darrington Witt reaches his arm out to block him. He explains that the tiger is extremely docile, that scientists had engineered the perfect tiger as pet for him. The tiger, he says, is as smart as any other tiger, as capable of power, with the same speed and the same claws and the same teeth. Why a waterbed? Marston asks. Because if the waterbed breaks, it means that the arrangement has changed, he explains. The house tour concludes, the waterbed room clearly being what Darrington Witt had wished to show off. They return downstairs, the door of the waterbed room still visible, for tea and for Marston to do what he had come there to do, which was to try and sell this extravagantly rich man's solvents, cleaners, and other home care products, cheap products cheaply made that Darrington Witt had no purpose for. Marston opens his suitcase to retrieve his showcase products. The snap of the first latch on his suitcase signals to him that something is wrong. The suitcase feels like it is ready to burst open. Whatever is inside is not what he had packed. Darrington-Witt sees this confusion and looks at Marston, confused himself. Marston snaps open the second latch and peeks inside. When he sees what's inside, he quickly latches the suitcase back having to use his full weight to get it closed again. When Darrington Witt asks what's wrong, Marston says that he has packed the wrong suitcase. Marston shudders. Inside the suitcase is a strange skull, humanoid but not of any type that he recognizes, too large. Startled and woozy from the long trek through the mansion, Marston drops the suitcase. The skull pops out of the suitcase, drops to the ground, and rolls over to Darrington Witt's feet. Darrington Witt looks at it, looks at Marston, and then begins to change form. His skin turns bright white, his skull begins to largen and elongate, his limbs get thinner, and he begins to glow. His fingers morph into elongated blades. Marston can tell with certainty that this creature is angry, but cannot explain how he knows. Raphael Muslani explains that Marston can feel Darrington Witt's feelings as truly as if they were his own. Darrington Witt begins to slash towards him with his claw-like fingers extremely slowly, as though speed and power were not the mechanism through which the violence would be achieved. Before the claws can reach Marston, they hear a pop from upstairs, and the sound of water hitting the floor. Darrington Witt is distracted by this, and Marston uses this opportunity to run for his life, not looking back. As he sprints to the front door, he briefly trips over the showcase items that he had brought in the suitcase, which had been mysteriously strewn across the foyer. Afraid not just of Darrington wit, but of a reality that seemingly betrayed him, Marston goes to his house to grab some camping supplies, and heads out into the woods in a panicked decision to live off-grid for the rest of his life. He finds a cave and builds a small fire inside for the night. He is cold and miserable and not of a survivalist inclination. It is raining just outside the mouth of the cave. Living off the grid was looking less and less like a serious possibility. It was beginning to seem easier to try and find a way to become comfortable enough to return to society. Marston watches the fire and thinks about Plato's allegory of the cave, about the different levels of understanding reality, and wondering how many more there are past his limited conception, considering what he had just witnessed. Marston looks up from the fire and sees the tiger, standing in silhouette in the mouth of the cave, like the two-dimensional figures on the wall in Plato's allegory. The tiger approaches slowly, peacefully, as though it were making the conscious effort to be docile. The tiger looks at Marston for a moment, knowingly, then drops something from its powerful jaws onto the ground, causing a reverberant clang inside of the small cave. It's one of the rings that Darrington Witt had been wearing. The story ends there. I enjoyed the story well enough. I appreciated the thematic throughline of belief, first as the belief in philosophy from the professor, then the belief that one is owed better than to be a salesman, and how that intersects with being in the presence of someone incredibly well off then the crumbling of belief in the face of something impossible to understand. In this telling, the construct of belief is tied so tightly to our material conditions as to fundamentally change when they change. We are all one missed paycheck away from hiding in a cave and questioning our own reality. I considered these characters as stand-ins for what I knew about Raphael Muzlani, but I wasn't sure that that cohered. The story was dedicated to Lucy. The tiger is described as the perfect large cat as pet, and is the hero if there is a hero in this story. So it is tempting to say that the tiger is Lucy. In that case, would that make Darrington Witt the dangerous alien creature Raphael Muslani? He certainly felt strange to me at times, but never threatening. Am I Thomas Eugene Marston, overread and wandering the universe in search of meaning? Protected by an unlikely feline protector? Protected from whom I still don't understand? From Raphael Muzlani, From his stories? From being the product of his stories? This reading didn't cleanly synthesize into what I knew about Raphael Muzlani, the man, nor should it. Consider if that reading was the only correct one. A reading where only I know what the characters are standing in for, and the standing in is part of the message. It would be a story entirely for me. That wouldn't be a worthwhile story, not just because others wouldn't understand, but because it wouldn't expand Eliza Schultz in any direction. I know the story of Raphael Muzlani, Eliza Schultz, and Lucy, the largest cat in the world. I didn't need it told to me with different names. It was already being told. The fire had gone out. The shadows had stopped dancing. I was sitting, legs crossed, on the floor of the cave chamber, silent but for the sound of water. Lucy was sitting to my right, leaning against me ever so slightly, her body huge and warm, the longest leash in the world trailing behind her, back the way we came. I stood up. It was time to move again. It was time to leave the cave.